live on YouTube. All right, we are now. We are now. I'm sorry, guys. It didn't go live on YouTube. We are now. I hope we didn't lose anything. But so, Eric, uh, some of the best things we didn't lose, of course. I lost some of my jokes here. Maybe people wouldn't have liked them anyway. <laughs> but, Eric, so let's talk about you're, you're three months from being 21 years old, yep. correct? And you started this genealogy when you were 13, right? Yeah, I was. I every every time I get asked the question, I feel like I give a different answer, but uh, it all blends together in my head. But yeah, 10, 11, 12 ish around there, fourth, fifth grade feels like a lifetime ago. And, and why did you start doing this? I mean, uh, short answer was I just got bored. I wanted something to do. I saw a commercial. I said, wait a second. I feel like this might be something that would take up some of my time for a little bit. Didn't think it would take up my time for 10 plus years, but here we are. And now uh, you started out finding what uh, missing family members, people that were looking for parents, lost children. What what were you doing? Tell explain to us what you were doing. Yeah, so it was a, it was a lot of family tree stuff at the start. So just you know, uh, doing basic family trees, typical research, you know, the stuff everyone thinks of when if they know what genealogy is, if if they think of that. So I did that for a few years, and of course I still do, but. When I was probably around 15, 16, 17-ish, I started getting into a lot of the DNA stuff and the finding families and finding grandparents and all that stuff. You know, I've I found, uh, your, you know, your father is the mailman, your father is the milkman. Um, but it's enjoyable. I love it. I get to help people. Um, and it's just, it's really rewarding work. Tell us some of the one of the most embarrassing things that you found out that you had to tell someone. Oh, that they... that's a good question. Embarrassing. I usually get what's the worst thing. Um, I think the most embarrassing would be I had one where this woman believed that her great grandfather was uh, like royalty of a of a certain ethnicity. And I found, and he was a, an artist. And I found out that the actual ancestor was uh, someone who lived down the street, who was of, of that ethnicity, and he was a painter for advertisements. So I, I don't think that's embarrassing, but I, I think it's funny to you know see the what was told and what the actual answer was. Right, I, I could think someone could... Th uh, think that they were born of royalty and then they find out that the guy that they thought was royalty actually was a janitor in PS 33 in, uh, in Pennsylvania, right? Yeah. Probably in Pennsylvania, they don't name schools like they do in New York PS and then the public school and then they give it a number, you know, Billy, my father used to tell people that we were, uh, from a, a Royal family because of <laughs> Prince Rainier Grimaldi and, uh, who knows, maybe somewhere back in the genealogy, but my father was a special agent for the, uh, for the state and uh, a Marine, but uh, he always used to tell people, yeah, we have royal blood in our family. So maybe one of these days I'm going to do the uh, genealogy uh, background and see where it leads. But Eric, a quick question. When when you started this, obviously you used the internet to do all the searches. Now, is it difficult for people to do their own type of genealogy or is it real uh, simple? I, th I think it depends, but I think I think anyone can do it. It just might take a little bit of practice. Okay. Is, a, is a good way it boils down to. Yeah, for sure. All right. You know, Eric, with the privacy thing, now, once you put your information 
into a genealogy site, 23andMe, and uh, what's the other one? The other big one is Ancestry.com, uh, oh, Ancestry. Ancestry. Yeah. right? Like Lisa put us in Ancestry.com. Now, you have to be willing uh, to give up a certain amount of your privacy because things could come back that you're not ready for. And one of the things that Lisa and I were discussing off the air, and um, Lisa, maybe you could uh, answer this, is that I think now the FBI seeing all the criminal cases being solved with this technology, they want to take control of these databases. And I see all kinds of problems with that. Lisa, you want to comment on that? Right. So we know what they have CODIS, obviously. So they have the biggest database for um, all of the things that are crime scenes, unsolved cases, et cetera. So it's all sent there. Once they've been to the lab, uh, some have been analyzed. And now it's just sitting there waiting to find the offender. And we also know that whenever somebody's incarcerated for a felony, they have to surrender their DNA. And then that's also loaded in there in order for them to get to the match. But having one entity having complete control over, it's like anything, a monarchy, a dictatorship, having one entity that's going to control who gets it, who sees it. Because right now the FBI... Uh, CODIS will not release information to the Innocence Project. So they don't have authority to say, hey, FBI, I want you to look at this guy that's been in jail for X amount of years. We feel they were wrongfully uh, committed into jail and found guilty, but FBI won't surrender that. So that's one area where we're already seeing uh, a bias. Lisa, that's, that's a great point. And just to clear it up for our listeners, CODIS stands for Combined DNA Identification System. And the FBI runs it, they control it, and every time the FBI runs and controls anything, we don't uh, we don't have a great deal. Results are not great. No, they're not great. And, you know, the, we always hear the media saying they are the premier law enforcement agency in the country. And if you, were to, if you saw Comey, Strzok, and McCabe, it's hard to believe that that's true, you know. But You know uh, what, Billy, I think basically what she was, what Lisa was just saying, it really uh, like backs up what we've always said is the FBI loves to have all of their toys in the to uh, tools in the toolbox and toys in the toy box, but they don't like to share. And here's a perfect example of it. So uh, I, I just hope that there has to be some type of. Uh, they have to figure out the legality of it, the regulation, because I know that if, uh, you know, law enforcement wants to go into a 23andMe database or an Ancestry database, there's uh, privacy concerns and stuff. So they're probably going to have to figure out some ground rules because obviously we're into the next wave of DNA. We're into the future with this stuff. And, uh, uh, you know, we're going to talk about the case that Eric was just involved in. He solved a uh, over 50-year-old case. So, I mean, let's face it. This is where, uh, you know, law enforcement and police work is going. So they, they better but, You the know, Phil, my, my major, my bigger concern than even the FBI not sharing is that uh, private entities like the uh, American Civil Liberties Union will attack these databases and make it so that we can't use them to make an identification. Uh, that can happen. So we have to tread very softly in, in, as in a legal basis to do things correctly so that these entities don't try to shut down um, them due to privacy reasons and then take a tool away, this amazing, amazing tool away 
from investigators. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna balance it with this, Bill. What you just said, basically, cell phone records. When we do cell phone records, we get a subpoena. We have reason. There's uh, usually a, a district attorney or a judge signs off on the subpoena, so we're bringing them uh, a certain amount of evidence or cause. Uh, reasonable cause, reasonable suspicion. And we, you know, if it's a murder case, this might be the victim or it might be the, uh, the person that we think is the suspect in the case. So again, when you have that type of uh, a level of suspicion or you have, uh, you know, a suspect that you're eyeing, you can present that to these ancestry companies, 23andMe, whatever it is. And that would be the legal ramification for that. But I think they do need a, uh, they definitely need a baseline. They need to, to figure out some regulations on it, but it's almost the same thing. You know, when you go into someone's private cell phone records, uh, it tells you where they've been, who they're calling, uh, text, text messages are the specific, uh, words that were typed. So, I mean, you're really violating a person's rights. If you did that arbitrarily, however, you need a subpoena to do that. I think this is going to fall into the same category. Let's hope for the law enforcement community that that's how it, uh, plays out. Lisa, yeah, there, go ahead. There, Eric. I'm, I'm the, sorry. there are a lot of uh, privacy, you know, concerns involved in this stuff. And it's a very good point. Um, and, and the big thing that I see too, is there's a lot of, um, misconceptions and because it's complicated stuff. So people, I feel like sometimes people don't, um, I don't want to say understand, but people say, no, I, I don't want to do an ancestry test because, you know, the government's going to get it. Um, the, the databases like Ancestry and 23andMe are private and law enforcement have tried to get into them um, and they failed. Law enforcement can't get into them. So when genetic genealogy is being used to solve these types of cases, it's tricky because they're not using Ancestry and 23andMe. They're using uh, public databases where people have to willingly download their DNA from those private sites and upload them onto the public sites with, you know, signing, um, you know, terms and conditions that law enforcement, you know, may and can use their DNA. So a, a lot of times the matches that like someone like myself is working with for a criminal case are way, way, way distant and different than they are, you know, matches than you would see on a site like Ancestry. So Ancestry and 23andMe are, are the big public sites that I think law enforcement have tried and failed to get into. Uh, you know, they take privacy very seriously. Eric, could Eric. you give a, uh, I'm sorry, Bill, I just want to see if he could give an explanation or an example of uh, what site would you be talking about? Give us one of the sites that would be yeah, a voluntary yeah. site that they can get into. So so there's really, as, as far as I know, at least two main sites that law enforcement use with uh, investigative genetic genealogy. And those two sites are GEDmatch, which is frequently uh, quoted in the news a lot, um, and Family Tree DNA as well. Um, as far as I know, those are, you know, the two main sites that law enforcement can use and their match pools are, you know, significantly, you know, different and, and smaller. Um, I don't have the exact numbers than a, a private site like Ancestry and 23andMe. So like if I wanted to, um, you know, let my DNA be used to law enforcement, I would download it from a site like Ancestry. It's a little zip file. And then you upload it to one of those sites like uh, Family Tree or GEDmatch. And then you have to, you know, opt in for law enforcement to use your DNA. So that's why I say, like, the, the DNA matches that I get for a suspect are way, way minuscule, usually, in comparison to something I'd be getting, like, on Ancestry. 
Eric, thank you. That's an amazing explanation, which of course, I, I try. Have, I have, no, I'm just saying I have no real sense of, of this. I mean, I understand what you're doing, but if say I was a boss on the police department, and I had someone like you working for me, I would just keep bringing you food because there's no way I could do this myself. <laughs> and I say, keep working, Eric, keep going. Let, I keep myself locked away here. in my room, keep going. You'd be handing him plenty of overtime. That's, That's right. Lisa, any, any comments on this? Yes, because GEDmatch has been in the news, and even though it is a smaller database than Ancestry and 23andMe, they have been able to solve cases. Now, my question to you, Eric, is this. Why would somebody on Ancestry, like say me, load it up to a GEDmatch or family tree? Is it for me to expand uh, further than what Ancestry already has? I know some people like to uh, upload it to other databases in order to get more health information, not the genealogy stuff so much. I, I think yes. I mean, it would probably be my answer. Um, a, a lot of people like to upload it to those sites because sometimes, uh, you know, GEDmatch can can give you some interesting things like they have a few a uh, few free tools that you can use just to find out some more basic information. Um, you know, I, I think there's one option where um, you can put in your your kit number and it'll run the genetics and tell you uh, like if your if your parents are related. Um, just little caveats like that. Um, you know, people enjoy sometimes just doing as much as they can with their DNA. Um, if someone's adopted or, or trying to find someone, a lot of times they'll just put their DNA everywhere. Um, so I think people have a lot of varying reasons to upload it publicly, but I, I think a lot of them are, are the ones you mentioned. Okay. Thank you. You know, Eric, I wanted to, um, I'm, I'm going to play a little bit of the case that you worked on. And folks, if you haven't heard, Eric worked on a case um, that was a 57 or 58-year-old unsolved murder and rape of a nine-year-old girl. And Eric was instrumental in solving this case, which, which is just an incredible, incredible case. And I want to bring up the news report on this, and then we can actually uh, ask Eric a few questions about it. Morning. They know who killed Maurice Chiparella. And what happened to her ushered in a change in this community. Whether you like it or not, the way you lived changed after March 18th of 1964 in Hazleton. And lastly, this has been a day that this family has been waiting for for nearly 58 years. Newswatch 16's Amanda Eustace was at that news conference that just wrapped up. She's live in the Hazleton area with more. Hey, Amanda. Hey, Elizabeth, that's right. This case has been a long time coming for the Chivarella family and state police say they now know who kidnapped, raped and murdered Maurice and Chivarella in 1964. Now it is this man. His name is James Paul Fort and he's now deceased. Now here today inside the Hazel Township Commons building, dozens of family friends gathered to learn the details of the investigation. Law enforcement members also were in attendance who covered the case spanning several decades. Now, Fort was just 22 years old at the time he took Maurice off the street when she was walking to school. Her body was found in a strip mine pit in Hazel Township nearly 58 years later. And with new technology, Maurice's killer was identified through genealogy. Her siblings say justice has finally been served. Now that we know the individual, it, it, it gives us a sense of closure. 
not full closure, we'll never have that, but a sense of closure that we know the individual that did it, and that the individual isn't out committing the same crime and hurting other young girls like Maurice. And And police tell Newswatch 16 that Fort died of natural causes back in 1980. We'll have much more up on the investigation coming up on later editions of Newswatch 16. For now, Amanda Eustace, Newswatch 16, reporting live. In I was 18 years old when I started working on this case. Uh, now I'm almost 21. So this is something that um, I've been working on this for a very long time, to say the least. Um, so it's certainly something that I know is going to stick with me. Um, because I spent so much time on it. I've been working on it practically uh, my entire undergraduate career so far in college. Um, so the people on this team mean a lot to me. They put so much into it. Um, we worked as a team and we, in the end, found the answers uh, that everyone was looking for. We will have Eric, that's amazing. Tell Thank us. Yes. Tell, yeah. yes. Thank you. Tell us what the big, big break was in this case. Yeah, I, I was actually trying to think about that the other day. I was wondering, like, what was the moment or the, or the big break when I, when I knew that I would have him? Um, and I, I think that would be the same one that I mentioned at the press conference the other week, which was when I got my DNA match from, uh, we started at 50 centimorgans, which I'll get into, but it's, it's, an, it's a DNA unit of measurement and it's extremely low. Oh my uh, God! I told you I had no clue about math, and you're gonna get. We, gonna, we started at fifty. Me <laughs> we started at fifty, and I think the big break was uh, after a year. I got it up to almost two hundred, which, like, now we're talking. So when I got that, and when uh, the lead investigator I was working with, the wonderful PSP Corporal Mark Barron, called me and said that we had that match, I knew in that moment that I didn't know when, but I, you know, we were gonna get him. What Eric Centimorgans? What the hell does that mean? Yeah, right. So a <laughs> centimorgan is—it's like a DNA unit of measurement. So you share a set amount of centimorgans with everyone in your family, and when you do a DNA test, that's what it'll—it'll it'll show you is the centimorgan count because that's how you predict relationships. So like with a first cousin, on average, you share about eight hundred centimorgans. Uh, with a sibling, it's about 2,500 centimorgans. Uh, with an aunt or uncle, it's about 1,500 centimorgans. So there's varying numbers, but there, there are these averages. So then someone like me can use those averages to, you know, figure things out. So like I mentioned, the top match in this case to start was 50 centimorgans. And like I said, you share 800 with a first cousin. And I was working with 50. So I think that goes to show just... You know, that's why it took me to starting from a small amount. Yes. Yeah. So impressive. Thank you. So Eric, Eric, when you have that, does that indicate to you though, that possibly you got to keep working because this could be a family member or, you know, a relative that is far removed and potentially the suspect could be within this family tree. Yeah. So when I started with 50, I mean, that's very distant. So when we, it's almost like a big game of hot and cold almost. So when we are, you know, looking at DNA samples and that sort of thing, and, and we're trying to get the numbers up and narrow in on someone, when we go from 50 to almost 200, then I know whoever gave that sample, you know, the, the suspect probably shares, 
uh, great grandparents with whoever gave the sample. So when I got to 200, you know, I knew, first of all, we were on the right track. Second of all, that we were fairly close. Uh, and, you know, third of all, that I was going to get him all for that. Wow. Eric, uh, was this guy that was eventually labeled as the suspect, was he on the radar screen of the detectives that initially in investigated the case or was he completely out of the blow? The first time they heard his name is when I told them his name. Wow. Ooh. Wow. So, <laughs> that's truly amazing. Thank you. Truly yeah. Amazing. So he was uh, 22, which I think is just crazy because I mean, I'm 20. So this whole time I I'm looking for someone who's practically almost my age. I mean, I, I never would have anticipated that. I mean, uh, so many people had theories on who did it and, and all of this, but no one suspected the 22 year old bartender who, you know, just did his own thing. Um, so no, he was not on anyone's radar until I brought him on the radar. How, how did you start this whole investigation? I mean, did you, did you piece together from seeing it in the, in the media somewhere and decide to get involved in it? And, and what is the start? I mean, how, maybe you could explain those two factors. Yeah. So I had, uh, I solved my first case, uh, it was my first semester of college. So December ish, 2019. Um, and then a few months go by and I'm thinking, wow, I mean, I, I just solved the cold case. Like, that's amazing. I mean, this is really great work and it's basically the same thing I'm doing now with finding biological family. You know, I, I wonder if, um, I could help out on any other cases, but I was thinking, you know, I, I got lucky with the first one. They reached out to me. I, I thought there's no way a, a police department would reach out to me again. You know, at that time I was 18. Um, so come, you know, here comes the pandemic a few months later, February, March, 2020, I'm sent home, I have time on my hands. And I think, all right, let me look and see if there's any, you know, cold cases around here where maybe they said they want to try genetic genealogy, or they tried and they didn't have any luck. Because, you know, I, I had the time, I had the experience, and I thought, you know, I, I could make a dent in some of these cases and, and help out a family. So I said, all right, let's go for it. So I, I was Googling and uh, Hazleton is only about an hour and a half from where I go to school. So it was one of the first uh, cases that I ran across was Marisa's. So I read about it. I saw that they had tried to do genetic genealogy, but I was reading news reports that were a year old. So I figured clearly they were not having luck with whatever avenue they were trying. So I, I reached out and basically the gist of my email was, hey, read across this, read this case. I have the time, I have the experience. Yes, I'm 18, but you know, please don't let that scare you. Um, <laughs> I, I like to think I know what I'm doing. If I can be of assistance, I would love to. So they wrote back very quickly and I, I it was a very nice response, but to me, I, I just kind of thought that they were writing me off, which is what I expected. I mean, I was 18, um, but they quickly got back to me again and said, hey, you know, we, we wanna have uh, our investigators come down and talk to you. So they did. They drove an hour and a half down here to E-Town where I'm at school, uh, talked, went over the case a little bit. And I basically said, come on, guys, what else are you doing? Just just give me the shot, because I, I really wanted to work on this case. I knew that if I couldn't solve it, at least I could maybe get them a little closer. You know, I, I just wanted to help give an answer. Um, so I said, come on, just, just give me a shot. Uh, and they did. And uh, a week later, I was on the team. Amazing. 
So, so how do you start though? I mean, where, where is your starting process? If, if uh, this suspect wasn't even in the picture, um, that's really intriguing me. How, uh, where did you start? So they had tried genetic genealogy analysis before. So they had um, the bodily fluids taken from the crime scene. Okay. They were preserved for 55 years at that point, which I think is wonderful. And hats off to the original investigators from 1964. Um, and they had it uploaded to one of the public sites. So I was given the DNA match list and they basically said, have fun. Uh, so for two years, <laughs> I just hammered away at it. And I, uh, I, I certainly, it, it was a team effort. Um, but in the end, that, that was the starting point. Uh, and for two years, we started with that 50 centimorgans to uh, 90 to 200 to 1,000. Eric, what was you know the what? Exa- ahead, exact though. year that this occurred? Uh, it was March 18th, 1964 was the case. That's amazing because, you know, the first DNA match in New York City happened in the 2-3 precinct, and it was a serial killer named Aaron Key. And that was the first DNA match they had in New York City. So this DNA, which was preserved, the bodily biological fluids, since 1964, and the fact that they preserved it and preserved it effectively, well, you know, we always learn that, Biological fluids has to be put in paper bags, not plastic bags. Yeah, and I always read like cases where they had DNA, but they don't anymore because of improper storage. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of it gets destroyed. You know how many uh, rape kits sat in in warehouses in New York City for Mm. years? And they probably had to throw a lot of them out. And just think of that. This one was preserved for that many years. Just unbelievable. I agree. One yeah, of the things, they, Eric, if I may, yeah, sorry, Lisa, Phil. Yeah, Lisa, is, go, go. All right. So, so what Eric does is such an incredible resource. And this is the biggest thing with law enforcement. They're so busy in detective units solving crimes that are current and they're backlogged a couple of years going back into the deep recesses of all of these cold crimes. The resources aren't there. They don't have it. They don't have a team that's specific to genealogy like you're doing. So it's almost as as if they need to have private contractors, people like you who have these businesses, hire you on to say, okay, we want you to go ahead and start opening up these cases in order to do that. Educate the police so that police can have a special skill set as well. You know, you got internet crimes, sex crimes, and the list goes on and on. So now if we just do that expansion across the nation, we have young, bright minds like you. You have your own business now. You know, at esggenealogy.com and people come to you and say, hey, I need help with this or that. And, you know, everybody's, you know, the resources are not exploited in the way that they, um, they're not used in the way that they can be. And now they can. You know, the, the story of uh, Catch Me If You Can, Frank Abagnale, he started going to work for the FBI what afterward. Yes. And that's what yeah, kind of reminds me a, of. a consultant, right? Yes. It, but it's a kind of like the reverse, you know, you didn't do anything bad and you were like, you know, serve your time and then go work for the FBI to help them. But what you're doing right now is just so amazing. And I would like to see, see it catch on because I think you'd be a phenomenal mentor to put Thank a program so together to get people who really care, care. There's so many true crimers out there that want to help solve these things. So, well, and that's a good you. point. I feel like a lot of my job is education for law enforcement and helping them understand the process and how to do it. Uh, God knows my friends at the state police uh, got a crash course. Yes. <laughs> you know, I, Eric, I, I really put them through it. Eric, what's amazing though, and I, I agree with everything Lisa just said. However, 
you have to have a real proclivity to do this and the willingness to do the thousands and thousands of hours basically at your computer practicing yep. and honing the skills that took you years to get. So if law enforcement is going to take this on, this has to be someone that has that geeky mentality to sit at a computer for thousands of hours. And Bill, I'm they're not, out there. I'm Bill, they are with... out there. They're on video games right now. You're, you're right. You're right. They have, they have maybe some. We're in a geek culture from... right now. Yeah, maybe some no used come to play video games after all, you know. Yeah. But he spent thousands of hours doing this. So you can't just say, oh, we're going to start the genealogy crime unit and anyone that's a geek, come on, apply. You know, I'm the, I don't, and Eric, I don't mean to call you a geek. Thank God we have people like you that have that. This yeah, I know how it is on here. I got thick skin. <laughs> you know, you know, the truth is, Bill, think about it. If we were investigating a homicide now, this is a cold case. So, you know, and some 18 year old kid or 19 year old kid calls up and say, hey, guys, I think I could solve the case. We'd, we'd be like, yeah, all right, kid, anything you say and hang up the phone probably. But the fact that you had already solved one case and it was a cold case, I would definitely give it the shot. You know, you're not like trying to be like a psychic where you're going to figure it out by uh, mental telepathy. This <laughs> yeah. is based on science. So there's something to it. And, and I just think Bill made the point. It's a lot of tedious work and not everybody could sit at a computer and do those type of things. Obviously you're that type of person and, you know, hats off to you. And I think uh, you probably have a tremendous career ahead of you. And Thank you so uh, much. good luck with it. I, I This is really just fascinating stuff, especially, Especially being in the law enforcement and being a detective and investigator that worked on these cases, this is really, really good stuff that we're delving into tonight. For you sure. know, I want to put up this up on the screen, and this, of course, is the most famous case ever solved by a, ge a genealogy, and it's the uh, Golden State Killer. And telling me that I was coming with him, and that if I screamed, he would kill me. So we went out the back door. Vet's father, Claude Snelling, woke up and saw the man already outside the house trying to take her. Couldn't believe what he was seeing. And then he just charged out the back door. And the man pushed me down and shot my dad twice and then took off running. Snelling was a journalism professor at a nearby college. He's one of 13 murders Joseph James D'Angelo was charged with in 2018. The murder, experts at the time speculated, changed not only Visalia, but the suspect himself. We actually had Joel Fortvik, who was the psychiatrist on the Patty Hearst case, come in and help us. And he said, you better catch him because now that he's touched Snelling's daughter, he's gonna graduate and he's gonna kidnap and kill somebody. More officers were deployed and more departments became involved, but the calls kept coming in and the ransacker continued to escape police. We actually saw him several times, and he would come down the street up against the houses in the bushes. We had dogs, even had dogs trying to tra trail him, and he always seemed to disappear. Farrell Ward was an officer for Exeter Police, the town next to Visalia, when he was called in to work on the ransacker case because he had a canine, and dogs were scarce in those departments at the time. They called us, basically, for backup because... They, th they thought the guy was still in the same neighborhood. But what he didn't know was that he and the dog were chasing one of his own, a colleague he knew well, working side by side with him for three years. He's been in my house. He's met my family. What was he like? 
to me, he wasn't an outgoing guy, but he was always serious. He didn't like to joke around like the other guys. Policemen like to joke around because it relieves tension, you know. And he was always to himself. He was part of a burglary task force at some yes, point. Yes. So he could have totally been yeah. investigating his own ransackings. Yeah, he was uh, uh, selected as being head of their anti-burglary federally funded team. So uh, he had a lot of practice. Patrol would uh, take the reports from crimes that happened the night before. And then since he was the investigator, he would go out and investigate the crimes. And then he would make the determination whether to close the case or leave it open or whatever. It was his decision to make. Well, if he did the crimes, he would follow up on the cases and take care of case close. Unbelievable, right? And it turned Head out of the anti-burglary task force. And he did 12 murders and they said over 50 rapes. That's five zero rapes. And he was a free man. For 40 years. Yeah. Unbelievable, right? Under the radar. And wow. thank God for that. Thank God for uh, Jed, Jed Match. That was the, they were able to find uh, his brother and then go a little bit further. And I think it ended up being a discarded can or something to be able to get his DNA to make the match. You know, I think you're bringing up familiar DNA now, and I was going to ask Eric about that. Eric, could you tell us a little bit about familiar DNA? Because that's starting to come into uh, law enforcement's radar screen, so to speak, too, in recent uh, history. I, I noticed there was a couple of cases in the last couple of years where they talked about familiar DNA. Yeah, so I, I, at least when it comes down to genetic genealogy is like lead generation, so when I'm saying, oh, this guy looks interesting, I'm not saying he did it. I'm saying maybe you should uh, get DNA from, you know, from a family member or that sort of thing um, and, and look into him. So like when I found James Ford, I had it narrowed down basically to him. I, I knew it was him, but he'd been dead for 40 years. He, you know, didn't have any living siblings. So we, we couldn't, you know, get sort of, you know, familial, uh, you know, stuff. But his brother uh, recently passed. And I think it was disclosed that um, we got lucky and we got some samples from his uh, brother, which, which basically showed us we were on the right track. But at the end of the day, you know, being that he's been dead for 40 years and he, you know, never married, never had kids, um, I had to help get him exhumed because that was the only way, um, you know, like we couldn't get a, a Coke can or something out of the trash. We had to sure. dig him up. Yeah, that's incredible, Eric. I mean, so uh, how was it digging the ditch? <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't there, but I heard about it. Um, and I normally I'm sure I would be a, a little worried. But at, at that point, I, I, I knew it was him. We all really pretty much knew it was him. You just um, need to confirm it, I guess. Yeah. And, the you know, the, the judge agreed with the, uh, the subpoena, or the, you know, the affidavit for the exclamation. Um, you know, we, we had enough evidence and, and proof that it was probably him. Um, but it was... Uh, it, it was an it was a nice phone call to get to hear that the exhumation was successful, and the odds of the DNA being uh, not his were one in 
380 septillion, which is 24 zeros. Oh, oh my that was a nice phone call to get. How did, how did he die? They said he died of natural causes. He died fairly young, correct? He's 39. Yeah, he, I think it was 38 or 39. He dropped dead at the behind the bar at the bar he was working at. Yeah. Heart attack, heart attack or they don't know. Um, I know PSP did the death investigation and it was basically heart attack, natural causes. Okay. Uh, he just was at work and just dropped. That's I was amazing. just being a little inquisitive if it was drug related or something like that. Yeah. I mean, I, I think we'll never know. Um, but I mean, he, he was 38, but at, at least, uh, if he couldn't be brought to justice in 2022 for his crimes, at least he did not live a long life, you know, potentially doing this to other people. Wow. Eric, I saw that uh, he did have sex crimes in his criminal record. So it's not somebody who just kind of stopped. And are there other missing and abducted children that we have Good not question. made the link to uh, regarding him? Because one lady in an interview said five years after that abduction of that little oh, girl. He tried to abduct her, right? She said. Yes. And so it wasn't successful because they ran and they knew about the case and their parents said to be safe. So, you know, what kind of success has he had? It, what other missing people, if he stayed in that area where he lived and worked in that area still, I wonder about any other cold cases. Yeah. And I mean, who knows if, if some of the reports after the press conference, you know, are a hundred percent brought some cuckoos out, out that just yeah, wanted exactly. some. Yeah, but of fame. I mean, he, he had 10 years after the murder, he was arrested for, um, I believe the technical terms were indeviate sexual assault or intercourse and aggravated assault. Um, he, uh, I believe the story was he, he met a woman or he met, he met a friend at the bar, uh, promised to drive her home. And instead of driving her home, he took her to a dirt road and assaulted her. Um, and she was recently interviewed, I believe it was said, um, you know, by the state police. And she told them that she thinks she would have been killed unless someone wasn't driving by and see him assaulting her and, and mm. stop it is my mm. understanding. So she told investigators that she was, con you know, convinced that he was probably going to kill her if, if he, you know, he wasn't caught. Um, so that was 1974. And then in 1978, there's not a lot of details, but he was arrested for um, disturbing the peace, something, uh, I don't want to say small, but something like that. I, I don't think there's a, there's a lot of details. Um, and I, I think it was only in the paper. I think the actual report, it wasn't even filed or was lost, but I mean, the, the 1974 case is substantial and it, you know, sure. it shows that clearly he, uh, exhibited this kind of behavior. And I, I'll never forget when I read the newspaper clipping of that assault, because it, you know, the place where he took her, he took her out on a dirt road by the stripping pits, the coal mines, which is very similar to what he did with Maurice. So when I read that, I, I knew, I said, hold we on. A minute. Guy. This, yeah. this, I think we have him. You know, so Eric, that's uh, that guy's name is James Fort. Someone in the chat was asking the, uh, the guy's name. Folks, this is Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories. Um, if you're not subscribed to us, please go on our YouTube, hit the subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, ring that bell. And if you want to support us financially, you can go on our Patreon. We have three different levels. And if you want to join the Police Off the Cuff YouTube family, go on our YouTube site. And we have five different levels, and you can you can see the people in the green font. They belong to our YouTube family. Folks, this is an amazing. And one thing I wanted to mention, 
We have a, a unit on the NYPD called the Special Victims Unit. It used to be called Sex Crimes. And what they do a lot of, and they usually assign a couple of detectives that are very experienced, they called the uh, DNA cold hit unit. And they'll get a hit on a rape from DNA that may be, you know, sitting in a uh, sitting in a warehouse somewhere and it gets identified some way, you know, and, and the toughest way I think to identify DNA to make a match is what you alluded to before, Lisa, the CODIS system. It's almost like they need, you know, because they, they almost need an exemplar to it's easier to compare it against an exemplar than CODIS. But let's say it comes up. Now someone who's identified is in prison. These detectives have to go to that prison and interview this inmate. And the first thing the inmate's going to say, well, they, they're skilled detectives. They slam the door on consensual sex right away. You know, have you ever been in this location? Have you ever met this woman? You never had. You've never been here. You never met this woman. Okay. Now that eliminates consensual sex because you can't have consensual sex with someone you never met, right? And they slam that door and then they break it to the guy. Guess what? You're being arrested for rape first degree. And the guy who thought he was getting out next week now is doing another 25 years, you know? Right. But that's got to be so satisfying for those detectives to do that. Absolutely. I, I think that uh, based on what you were saying, Eric, about his possible criminal past in 1974, it sounds like there could be other victims of this Mr. Ford. And I think that, um, you know, the fact that the DNA was properly stored and was able to be compared from 1964, that's probably a, a miracle in and of itself. I, I think that maybe in, in some some of these other cases, there could be another one of those uh, miracles where, you know, the stuff is stored for a, such a long period of time, you know, must get moved and stuff like that. And then the uh, the atmosphere, the environment, the, uh, you know, if it's too hot or too cold, I wonder if that could affect it. But uh there's probably a good chance based on what you're saying and, and a little bit of history we have on this guy that uh, there had to be other, uh, there had to be other uh, victims of this guy. I mean, you know, he didn't start out with that first one. There probably may have been some before that. And then he graduated after that, you know? So uh, yeah, I know state police at the press conference said they are uh, eager to talk to anyone who uh, knows new Mr. Fort. That's for sure. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's a pretty uh, pretty uh, interesting point, and I, I guess you know uh, if he was uh, he died at thirty nine or whatever it was. Yeah, thirty eight, thirty nine, something like yeah, that. Yeah, so there's probably still some uh, associates of his around or people who knew him where he worked in that bar. But again, the the, uh, the victimology uh, that's really where we have to look. We have to look at look for victims to see uh, if there's any unsolved murders or. Uh, you know, sex crimes that have gone on unsolved for all these years. That's where I think I would start. I'm going to put on the screen C.C. Uh, Moore, who is the most um, probably famous genealogist in the country right now. So if you just don't even know where to go, um, sometimes DNA testing can show you that your ancestors came from a certain area of the world or even certain area of the United States, because you can see by those who share DNA with you that there are certain ancestral homelands to you. So if those are not already in your tree, then you know that that's something you should be looking at. For instance, uh, when I did a DNA test, I discovered I had a little bit of Jewish ancestry that I didn't know about. Well, I have some brick walls, of course. And by testing cousins, I've been able to zero in on which branch of my tree that Jewish ancestry came down to me from. And that happens to be one of my biggest brick walls 
is my second great grandmother had an unknown father. I think she was probably illegitimate. So it gives me new avenues of research. I didn't know where to go next with her. There didn't seem to be any existing records, or maybe there was never any record of her birth because it was so far back. Now I can look in the area she was conceived and look for maybe uh, families that had some Jewish ancestry. So that's just an example of how we might be using it. Um, it also works wonderfully for people with unknown parentage. So sometimes the brick wall is right here. There's you and you don't know the rest. So I work with adoptees a lot in order to learn more about their heritage, which any commercial DNA test they take will tell them something they didn't know in that case. And we can often reunite them with biological relatives as well. Well, one of the most important things with genetic genealogy now is the growth of the databases. The more people we have tested, the more meaningful our matches are. It used to be when I first started doing this, it was rare to find a meaningful match. We spent a lot of time going through our results and trying to dig out those gems, but they were few and far between when there was maybe 30,000 people in one of the autosomal DNA databases. Now, if you add the three commercial companies that are doing this type of DNA matching, it's over 1.1 million people. So we're seeing uh, closer matches, more meaningful matches, and that's just going to continue. As long as people stay interested in themselves and keep testing, the databases will grow and we'll all learn much more about ourselves than we were able to when we first started with this. Uh, we also have more advanced type of Y-DNA testing. We're getting greater geographic specificity. Also with mtDNA, we never were able to do too much with that in the genealogical timeframe since it, as you know, mutates so slowly. But with the full mitochondrial DNA sequence, we're starting to finally get into the genealogical timeframe. And I've worked on some amazing cases where very specific mutations were tied back to very specific geographic regions. And it often comes as a real surprise to the person that has tested. So I just see more of that, more testing. Um, I'm a non-scientist, so I'm counting on all of you scientists here at the conference to help push this forward. And the citizen scientist community is also a large part of that. We have the time and often the resources to do some of the work that the scientists don't have the resources or the ability to um, to delve into because they're you know counting on grants or uh, they've got to teach their classes, of course. And there's so many of us now that are so invested in this field that we're helping to push it forward. So I feel like it's Spencer Wells says the citizen scientists are a huge part of this community. And I totally agree with them because sometimes things that we discover then help the scientists to go further with that, to go the next step. And sometimes it works the other way too. They'll come up with something new and then we'll apply that to our research. So it's extremely exciting field. It changes every day. I wake up every day saying, what new thing is in my inbox today? What interesting opportunity or what new discovery, what new match does one of my cases I'm working on have? So um, I couldn't think of something that is more exciting to do at this point. Eric, I saw you shaking your head there in agreement and seeing all the things that she was saying. Have you ever met Cece Moore before? I have not, but I love what she said at the end with uh, waking up and seeing what adventure uh, the day's genealogy exploration will bring. That's pretty much word for word how I think of it, too. I think you should probably meet her because I think that you could uh, exchange notes and I think you could probably learn a lot from each other. And I find it very interesting where she said, I'm a non-scientist, yet, and so are you. And yet you have all this knowledge that had to be earned through spending thousands of hours at your computer. 
and learning things that you just can't teach somebody because it's almost like, say, swinging a baseball bat. The better you get, you know, hitting a baseball is because you swang it, you swang that bat since you were eight years old, you know, <laughs> and then you learn how to hit a curve. And it's well, similar. I don't know if this analogy is good, but it's similar. <laughs> you spent all these hours learning how to do this, and someone just can't be appointed to do this. Exactly. And that's why law enforcement, I mean, sometimes they try to do this work, but I mean, they don't know how to do it. Uh, you know, a lot of investigators. So that's why, like I mentioned earlier, I, I feel like a big part of my job is education and, and trying to teach law enforcement because um, knowing and having them know how to do it is extremely valuable. You know what, too, a lot of times, but before I get into that, we have somebody joining the show here. Who is that, Lisa? <laughs> she was insistent. She was such a good girl. My this God, is, that's a cute little pup. This is Pinky. This is my little daughter. Hey, we'll Pinky. check on Ancestry and show that she belongs to me. <laughs> well, what I, the point I was going to make to Eric, you, uh, officers not being able to do it, not knowing how to do it. Times like I worked in a busy squad. There were cases coming in continually have the ability to put a lot of man hours to sit in front of a computer and do that type of stuff too. So somebody like you from an outside agency, let's say would be perfect or other analysts as well. I'm, I'm sure that uh, this is going to expand. There's going to be you, there's going to be other people doing the same thing. I'm sure going into the future, but uh, that's a challenge is that now Bill, you were a, a boss the squad and a homicide squad of all things. So I'm sure you can, it's, you can't really spend a lot of time when there's other cases coming in. I mean, listen, you have to spend as much time as you can uh, to socks and to get the uh, justice for the victims. But uh, it's kind of difficult to put somebody in front of a computer for weeks on end. And, and, and who wants to do that type of work, too? You know, so I guess uh, I, I think someone would have to have to be able to do this at home to spend the kind of hours that Eric has spent. I went through three dorm rooms trying to find this guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's three imagine. years. Yeah, imagine. that's right. That, that's but, but, but the results were well worth. Yeah, um, thank you. They yeah. it, it really was. Absolutely. We're just going to do a quick commercial break, Phil. You want to do? Uh... Joe Law, have you found yourself in a jam? Are you in need of legal counsel in the New York area? Do you need a victim's advocate? Well, Joe. He's not only an experienced trial attorney, he's also a retired 18-year member of the NYPD. He literally knows defense. His website is jmurray-law.com. His telephone number is 646-838-1702. Or you could at jmurray-law.com. You were cutting out a little bit, Phil. I don't know what... Yeah, you know what? Somebody sent me a text that there was some choppiness during the show. I don't know if that had something to do with it. My mic is working fine, but okay. uh, I don't know. Wait, maybe a connection, but uh, well, that's that's had, Joe Murray. <laughs> that Joe Murray's the attorney. They, he was cutting out a little bit. So, Eric, any any new cases? And I was talking to you before we went on the air. I think that um, we're going to try to see if we can hook you up with the uh, Long Island serial killer case. Absolutely. Uh, with the I, I keep case. I keep reading stuff about that. I, I think they're trying something. I mean, I hope. They I get don't know why before. they didn't reach out to you because they really should. They they will now. Once I we're going to have to reach out to them. And there's plenty of people familiar with that case in the New York area that watch us. So I I don't think it's going to be a, a heavy lift to get them. And, and Eric, when they hear that you're 
pay, paying me 10% for the referral. They're going to give me. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> the financial ways. There he is. <laughs> that, that's right. Lisa, come on. you got to have some good questions of Eric. You, oh, gosh. Have? I just, I think he's amazing. I just, Thank I'm so, so thankful for you, for people like you that care about, you know, unsolved cases, people that are the, the true crime sleuths out there who are uh, looking to help police. I mean, with all of these abductions, there's so many things uh, that we have and we are not able to sol solve it because we don't have the resources. So knowing somebody that like you that has a heart of gold, who's willing to do this on their own time without any uh, monetary gain from it, which you will be in the future, mark my words, Oh, for um, sure. I just, I just am. So, I'm so proud of you. Thank you so much. He, I he's amazing. It. And you know something, Eric? Do you do you have an agent or a manager? I do not myself. I you volunteer. Know, you, you should. You know why? <laughs> because these police departments, they got plenty of money, and I know they're probably trying not to pay you. Are That's you on LinkedIn? Police, you know? I am. Yeah. You're on LinkedIn. Sure, yeah. Go, go find me. Eric, I got a quick question. Now, I know that a lot of these, I, I think it's 23andMe, they they advertise, and this might be a reason for people to really look in and upload their DNA uh, or to do the test. Uh, they talk about that they could uh, perhaps tell you if you're prone to certain diseases and stuff. Do you know anything about that, Eric? Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I know Ancestry doesn't do that, I believe, but 23andMe does. Um, so I, I think they can just tell you if you're genetically predispositioned to uh, I think it's, I don't know off the top of my head, but it's a set list of, of things, um, you know, certain genetic uh, inherited diseases. And then it'll also tell you, um, you know, the odds of you having a certain eye color, the odds of you, you know, having a certain hair color. Um, and I know they're, they're pretty much all on point. Um, I know my 23andMe, I think my eye color, it was like 85%, um, I don't know, uh, brown, and I have 15% hazel, and I have hazel eyes. So sometimes, you know, the the minority um, answer is correct. But yeah, 23andMe does it. I think it's great. Um, and it, yeah, it can be interesting for a lot of people, and especially if someone's adopted, um, you know, finding out if they might be predispositioned to something, uh, you know, I, I think that's really valuable. Eric, could you tell me uh, through my DNA, if I'm going to get rich from doing this podcast. <laughs> For a fee, of course. <laughs> there you go. That's why, that's why this kid is gonna be, he's going to be successful. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. He's, he's going to be the next Zuckerberg, but he'll be a nice guy, though, not like Zuckerberg, you know? Eric, I hope you... But you should be taking notes on all of this stuff for a book because I think there's a book right in this one case that you uh, just recently... Everyone keeps telling me that, so I feel like I, I need to do it. Absolutely. For that for years. I, I think I need to bite the bullet and go for it. You, you could really call yourself gene genealogical private eye. Eric Schubert. <laughs> <laughs> Eric Schubert. Don't make on me the pay case. for that name. <laughs> no, no, I'm well, giving it to you tonight. <laughs> you know, I'm going to give you, and you can get your own badge and everything, you know, get your own shield out there. <laughs> oh, Eric, I have another a little personal question. Of course. Are you getting, are you getting all the chicks because of this? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's certainly been. Uh, I, I think I, I just had an interview today with the school paper here at E Town. So I just. Uh, I, I like please. how you, you skirted know, that question, Eric. Smart you, man. You didn't answer my question. Very smart man. But you know, I'm I'm good at dodging questions. Um, <laughs> but no, I uh, I'm just 
I keep myself busy. You know how I operate, but um, <laughs> I, I try to have fun every guy, once in a while. I'm sure too. you're a popular guy. Do a lot. Do a lot of people try to get freebies uh, for the ancestry stuff from you? Uh, friends and family, of course. I, I go for it. Uh, happy to help. Happy to help my friends, people around campus. Um, told you he has a heart of gold. I told you. I, I know. You know. <laughs> He could use this for evil purposes too. Stop. <laughs> Don't give me any ideas. <laughs> so we how about that in the world? Do you ever, do, does anyone on on your campus ever ask you to teach a class on this? I, I It's actually been discussed lately. Yeah. Stay tuned. I think it's a great idea because that is. it's not like you need like a, a, a master's degree or a PhD. You already have it. You have a PhD. Phil and I used to say we both have PhDs in street. At least right. it well, that's it. That's a good point. That's exactly how I look at it because a lot of people think you need a degree or accredited or certified as a genealogist. I, I don't know if this is a minority opinion, but to me, I don't think that's important. I think what's important is having an actual track record and having the experience. Right on. So to no, me, Eric, you, I don't feel like I need to go get certified because I feel like I already, I already that, have that's Eric. That's all you need is someone like the FBI coming around with a certification test, you know. That's all you need is that. You don't need As that. You can tell, Bill loves the yeah, FBI. I, I yeah. love the FBI. Jimmy Calandra, who is a um, he he has his own podcast called the Bath Avenue Crew, and he wants to know how old you are, Jimmy. He's three months from twenty-one years old. Once he's twenty-one, we're gonna buy him his first beer. Or actually, the police, the police in the department where he solved this. A forty-year-old or fifty-eight-year-old murder—they should buy him. They should take him out drinking all night. Actually, <laughs> actually I'm sure I'll—I'm you know, uh, sure I'll say hello to them uh, once uh, my birthday rolls around. You know what, Eric? If you're in the New York area, Bill and I'll take you out. We'll purchase the drinks. You can have whatever you want. Dinner <laughs> on us, and don't worry about your age. You're so close, and and you're a valuable <laughs> asset to law enforcement. Thank clearly, you so much. Clearly, based on that 58 year old case yeah. and the other case that you solved, and I'm sure is going to be more going forward. So, to you, thank you. I appreciate much. it. Thank you so much, Eric, Eric. What are you working on right now? Uh, no comment, but you know me. Oh, wait a minute. Are you, gonna, are you becoming like an FBI agent now? I, yeah, I, always, no I always have something up my sleeve that I'm working on. Um, but I, as I always like to say, as long as there's a need for a family or a police department out there, I'm just going to keep on trucking. You know, Good real you. with Good Robo. You. Thank you for the $5 super chat. She said, I'd like this to go to a, a kit to help Eric solve another case. Canon. Thanks. By yeah. the way, I'm a female Eric. God bless, kiddo. Thank That's so you. Nice. That's so nice of her. But Eric, I mean, it, it is exciting. It's an exciting field. I mean, it's a field where, you know, not that many people can come and question you on your methods because you've invented your methods, you know. And right now there's no certification degree. There's no anything. You're calling all the shots, you know. And, and one day you have to make this translate into the – Tons of dead presidents on green pieces of paper. There he goes. I, I like the way you're thinking. <laughs> all right. So you got an agent with me and you got a financial advisor. Oh, my God. I got all I need right here. What can I do for you? I'm an author coach. I've written a few books. So there you go. You and, and, well, that's exactly what I need. You got a dream team. You got a dream team. He's going to write genealogical private eye. Eric Schubert. <laughs> that's, that is exactly what I need. Absolutely. I got the whole team assembled. 
Bill, I want to make a statement, and I'm sure you and Lisa are going to both be able to relate to this. Now, I always tell people that as a detective, I was an NYPD detective. I worked on homicide cases. Uh, you'd go from standing over a dead body with an empty notebook, a notebook where you, all you got maybe is not even the guy's name. And then sometime later, whether it be a day, a week, a month, or years, and you have the person in custody that committed that crime 100%. There's no better feeling as a law enforcement officer. And I think, Eric, you've experienced that because you took oh, on this sure. case, started from ground zero with nothing. Oh, even though the guy was deceased, we know 100% who killed that little girl. I mean, I don't right. think there's any better feeling for a person in law enforcement that's a detective or investigator. To me, I always, I always, I think that you could relate to that. And uh, I'm sure my other two people on the panel will agree with that. Of course, that. 110%. 100%. I'm grateful he only lived 39 years, quite honestly. Uh, and also too. grateful that he did not um, uh, have his body uh, sent to ashes, cremated. You know, right. yeah, I mean, you did have enough. They just wanted to firm it up. I don't even want to think about with, what I would have had so. to figure out if that happened. Mm-hmm. Just think about all the you would have had to have gone to the up. crematorium and collect his ashes. And oh, you, you know, I would have gotten it done. <laughs> well, listen, I, I'm sure you would have started. Maybe you would have found family or something. But think about all of the, the like they say, the planets were aligned. The the uh, rape kit was preserved for all those years, and then his body wasn't cremated. Thank God. And even when bodies are buried, a lot of times the 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 coffins aren't waterproof or they're 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 damaged or whatever. Sure. So all the things lined up properly yeah my understanding is that exhumation went very well yes that's that's good to know and uh like i said everything just fell into place i mean exactly there's so many variables of things that could happen flood could hit the uh dna the the uh the rape kit you know so uh just a really really fantastic story it's just well uh, phil phil we can tell those stories about the nypd where they would put the old cases down in the basement and then the basement would have a gigantic flood. And all the me. cases that were down there for years were just destroyed. This was before they put them on discs and microfiche and all of that stuff. So cases just got destroyed. But that was the old time NYPD. You know, guys, we're at an hour. And I usually don't like to go much past this. So I'm going to start with Lisa. Lisa, final words. Oh, final words is this is something that we've needed for a long time. I'm so grateful that we have technology that has caught up with all of the forensics that are left on crime scenes to go forward with this. And then for people like Eric, who really want to help solve crimes and get people their final answers. So that's my final thought. Thank you again. And thank Lisa, you, I want to also thank you for coming on the show. You're, you're fantastic. And I hope that you'll come back on again in, in the future. I can't guarantee we'll... Eric's head will probably be so big in another year or two <laughs> that I don't know if he'll ever come back when. on this. Sh- he may you never said come that this sh- time and I still came on. Don't <laughs> that's, worry. that's right. Well, uh, I have to flatter you some way, right? Grimaldi, <laughs> final words. Final words. Eric and Lisa, thank you so much, both of you, for coming on. Eric, uh, I know that you're going to do great things going forward, and I was going to extend a – uh, invitation to come back on the show anytime. We, uh, if you're working on a case, and here's something: if you ever, you know, you might be working on a question about investigation or some, uh, a, might just want to throw something at Bill or I. Feel free, please do get a hold of us. Uh, anything at all, even if it's sh- something that just maybe a shot in the dark. You never know. Maybe if we put all of our heads, I'll put you in the right direction and uh, keep doing what you do. 
not a lot of people your age that do this kind of stuff or show this kind of uh, integrity and ambition. So uh, hats off to you. I'll give you a salute and uh, good luck with everything. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And Eric, uh, all you women out there that are looking for uh, a sugar daddy, don't be looking at Eric. He's not. He's not. He's not. Hey, hey, hey! Yet. I'm an agent. I know. I know. He's got a good future, but he's not yet 21. You'll wait. Wait another three months. You know, he could be the next uh, billionaire with this technology. But Eric, it's really. I'm really proud to have you on the show. This is the second time. I think you're fantastic. I mean, you just have great things ahead in your life. You really do. And don't listen to me. I'm from the street, all right? You're, you're from the computer, and you got to stay at that computer because that's what got you where you're going. And, you know, you're going you're gonna to do amazing things with this. Thank so, you so much to the three of you. I appreciate it. And, uh, you know, kind the kind words mean a lot. Uh, I'll be sure to keep you all posted, and I'm sure I'll see you all soon. Yeah, and Eric, tell the uh, the president of your college that you want to teach a course next semester. Absolutely. And you want 75 an hour at least to teach the class. Thanks for the salary. Idea. You should, that's, you that's should get a buck, buck and a half. A buck and a half for an hour class. I Easy. Think. Yeah. How about that? Easy. Consider it done. All right. I'll, if I'll I'm his agent, it would be more like 500 an hour. <laughs> I'll give the guy a call. <laughs> Folks, this is Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Eric Schubert. Lisa Lockwood, always great to have you on the show. And Phil Grimaldi, everyone, have a safe night. Stay safe, everybody. Bye, everyone. One episode, just ain't enough.